Hi, I'm Sonny Alvestias, CTO in the gaming industry. Welcome to my podcast, aimed at software engineers, programmers, and computer scientists. In every episode, I put one of the best engineers working behind the scenes in the spotlight. Hi. In this episode, I had a conversation with Matthias Bus. He's based in Denmark and is a JavaScript expert. He was an early adopter of Node.js and maintained more than 600 packages on NPM. He's also the author of multiple distributed system and peer-to-peer -peer libraries. All right, let's listen to the episode now. Hi, Matthias. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you, Joe. How are you doing? I am doing fine. Yeah, just sitting in. I'm back in the office finally after like this, uh, in my own office after a long period at home, as most people are. So it's, it's nice to be back and nice to do podcasts again and all that kind of stuff. As uh, most of uh, my my episode, I'm I'm very curious about where does people come from and like where did they start their journey into uh, computer science. So, uh, what uh, what is your your story? <laughs> Actually, my, I think my story is probably a little bit different than a lot of other people because I, I didn't do any computer stuff or anything like that when I grew up or was a teenager or anything. I actually only started doing any kind of computer science in uh, when I went to university. I went to university to study uh, mathematics, like theoretical math, actually as part of that because <laughs> I think they kind of they kind of realized that there's not that many jobs in theoretical math. So they, they forced us to do like an intro to computer science uh, when I studied. Like that was like a requirement and I had to do that. And that was my first time I did anything programming wise or any like computer science wise on a computer. And I was just immediately like, oh my God, this is really, really fun. That was, we did Java back then. Uh, that was like the language of the university. I don't know what it is now. So we had this like, intro to Java environment and I got to code some math and then I was immediately like struck by it and I actually ended up doing my last year just taking all the computer science courses. I mean what particularly just appeared appealing to you like was it like the fun of, of programming on creating yourself or? I think it was like also because you know you know this is like a, it's a little bit classic but when you study math obviously there's some overlap between math and, and computer science and the, and the algorithmic part. So it's that feeling of like, oh my God, I can actually produce things now that, that solve things. We, we had to do all these simple things like uh, solving um, Sudokus using computer programs and stuff like that. And I was, my mind was just racing every time we did that of like, oh my God, this is like, you know, you can do all kinds of things. And then it really nailed it for me when um, I had an intro class there also as part of that force curriculum that was like an intro to networking or something like that, where somebody showed the the professor showed how you could um, you know make a TCP connection to another computer and send some data over and I was just like that was mind blown for me when I saw how relatively simple that kind of stuff was uh, when you know what you're doing I was, <laughs> I was struck immediately by the all the possibilities and I went home and played with it like crazy stuff like that so yeah I just went from there went from there and I got more and more into it that's cool that's cool so this is basically where you got your your i mean your vibe for peer-to-peer -peer systems and distributed systems so i had a pretty you know it's actually a pretty formal introduction to to the whole field and back then it was also when um it was java so we know we had all those uh, programming patterns and um, object-oriented programming and like interfaces and inheritance and all that stuff and i was all into that because that's what we were taught and i built these very very complex systems with all that and 
it's kind of funny to think back now because now I write code in a completely different way. But that was like my my upbringing into that whole field. Okay, that's cool. So what what happened when you you got graduated? At my school, they very much encouraged us to like uh, start early thinking about just careers in general. That's like that's also part of that you know uh, mid two thousands two thousand ten movement. I think especially in Europe about like oh we need to have less academics and more commercial applications. I had a student job at the university with a friend of mine where we were making things for healthcare. I did that while school and I went straight from there into like starting a little startup with my friend that did some um, browser-based file sharing. And I went straight into that after school, uh, after doing my undergraduate degree. And yeah, we did that for a couple of years and we were lucky enough to get acquired by a, by a minor company. And that was basically the leeway into my open source career. <laughs> we... Learn, learn, learn to program, and then we started a company. And you know, as many other people who probably started tried to do a startup in their early career, we by doing that we we really learned how to program because then we we got all the you know when there's people using your stuff, you you actually know what matters and what you should think about and scaling. And we we had to learn all that really quickly because our site got got recently decently popular while we were building it. So. I had some crazy experiences there with like, we only know, know about databases because we had a course at school about databases, but we didn't know anything about stuff called database indexes, for example. So somebody taught us that and then all of a sudden we we're like, oh, our load just went from like 99% to 5% CPU. That was really cool. Now we learned that. And, but like, you know, while running a company, right? So it seems like pretty naive when you think back of it, but I think sometimes naivety like that can be really, really good to you learn to understand what actually matters and what you shouldn't think about. So, uh, and what kind of uh, technologies you were using at, at that time? But we just randomly stumbled on this article, I think it was on Reddit back then, about this new thing called Node.js. And this was like way, way back. And Node.js was uh, just getting started. I think it was like 0. Point, version 0. 0.2 or 0. 0.3, something like that. Like really, really early. And we're like, that sounds really fun. And uh, people say it's going to be cool let's let's just let's just build with that like again pretty naive and uh, we just started building tons of stuff with that even though it was like completely immature i recently found like because uh, uh, github they, they had a thing where you could see your first issue or pull request or something like that and that's when i made my github account back then and i, I found out that my first issue i posted was on the node.js repo with like a memory corruption issue and like the core thing because we were doing something that corrupted the memory just something simple around just thinking back being like why you know <laughs> hitting stuff like that and then continuing down that path it's like you know that's that's uh this requires a little like i said a little bit of naivety but it was good and uh the community back then was really small and we got a lot of help and so we built the entire thing on, on node.js back then in, in javascript that was actually my first endeavor into javascript other than having, i think we had a course in school that was actually just writing node.js that was before we had npm there was no there was no npm back npm back then and i don't know if there were streams i don't think that was it was just very very basic so it was really just a bare node.js yeah we had to write everything ourselves and we wrote tons of code and we were doing some some streaming like our site was like good at streaming files and that's why we're also like we're looking into node.js because that was like the first big promise of node.js was like it's really good at streaming tons of data and stuff like that because of the async io stuff so that's why we, we built with it is it because you had this good experience at the beginning of your, of your career that you just specialized into javascript and node.js after or you know the more i learned about javascript especially in that period also now is that First of all, it's like it's constantly evolving, which is really cool. And the community of our node back then was pretty small. 
And it was full of all these people that we didn't know. And we were just like classic, a little bit shy, Northern Europe people, European people. But they were extremely helpful. And it was open source. We never done anything open source before. And this was like all of a sudden an open source community, even though we didn't really know what it meant. But we got, it was very welcoming. So that whole thing, I think, stuck with me that it could be done like that. And JavaScript, I learned to really love because... JavaScript itself is a, it's a weird language, right? I think everybody can agree that it's a weird language. It has all this weird stuff we, we, we don't use, and then it has other stuff, and some of the functions are weirdly named, and some isn't, and some, some of it is front-end, and blah, blah. That part always appeals to me because it's like, it's not a language for purists, you know what I mean? It's a language for pragmatists because the, the language itself is extremely pragmatic. Not trying to be the most beautiful language ever written, and that that part just really sticks to me. It's, it's a it's a language for getting stuff done, and that's why I love it. And then you know, combined with the whole race to make it really really fast, it's never let me down. So uh, while I enjoy writing tons of other languages now, it's just it's always the one I come down, come back to when I just want to get something done because it just works. I can feel myself getting a little bit more conservative with the years with the language, right? Like you know, it's it's been evolving pretty heavily the last four years with, with all the, the new stuff and originally when i tried doing that, those kind of things i was like oh why does it need to change but now i'm actually also really enjoying that trying to embrace all that the new stuff so yeah no i love it so you do you mean that you, you've been able to keep up to date with all of the, the upgrades from from node yeah like with you know with the, um, the async away stuff that's happening now and i recently started using the new module system also while you know, I have tons of thoughts about all that stuff. It's always nice to see things evolving and, and, and there's lots of benefits in a, lot of, in a lot of this stuff compared to how we used to do things. Because I know you, you're you kind of expert in JavaScript, but I was thinking also of TypeScript. It's getting more and more popular, right? There's more and more adoption of it, like Angular or React or all of these big frameworks there. They support TypeScript and they kind of push for it sometimes. What, what do you think of TypeScript as well? Uh, I don't think much of it. Like I haven't. I don't think I've really written any TypeScript myself. If you come from a compile language, I noticed my flow was very different back then. I think that's also why you learn all those those patterns and stuff. It's like having that compiler that just adds x amount of milliseconds every time you try to run something. It just completely changes your flow because you start thinking a lot of, about a lot more about your changes rather than just when I write a Node program, I run it you know eight thousand times because I just continuously change something, run it, change something, run it. I'm not a very big fan of compilers in general when I do my flow and I think whether it's TypeScript or something else, adding that is too much complexity for me. I can totally understand it actually if you're like the things you just mentioned where if you're writing a front-end thing because you probably have that compilers anyway, right? That it can add benefits. I think types, I notice how all my JavaScript I write is actually implicitly probably super typed. I don't do any fancy thing with like dynamic types, but I also remember one of the things I got very frustrated by writing Java was that types are really cool until they're not, <laughs> you know, when uh, as soon as you do any kind of, I don't know if you ever played around with like the type generics and stuff like that, you know, that whole language inside a language to express an object inside an array, if there can be anything inside an array and quickly gets out of hand where you're just at some point, you're like, what was it actually we were trying to do rather than just writing this type thing. So I'm sure they have a ton of innovations around that, but that part doesn't interest in, interest me that much. And, but I would love to see uh, more primitive types in JavaScript in general. I think that's also 
potentially pretty good for performance. Like we do all this stuff anyways, thinking about performance, like if something is a number, we don't all of a sudden switch it to a string because I'm sure the, the virtual machine wouldn't like that anyway. So being able to express that would definitely be nice. So you mean you mean like at work or your entourage poke you about TypeScript? Hey, should we switch to TypeScript or? Yeah, I just what I meant by I see a lot of people using it because other people use it rather than being able to super express other than a little bit of a vague types makes things nicer argument because I, I think that's true. Types make a lot of things nicer and they make a lot of things more complicated. It's like a pros and cons game, like everything else in programming. After you uh, you got acquired and such, so uh, was it at that time after a bit after that you you got into like open source and you participated to the the DAT protocol or? We did a lot of open source because like Node.js itself was open source. So we didn't know anything else actually, honestly, back then. But we did a lot of open source in our in our small company back then. And I get that was also in the early, you know, early days of NPM and early days of Node. And I remember back then there was maybe, you know, it's like maybe like a couple of thousand modules in NPM. And if you wanted to name something, something, the name was available. I remember I used to have the name DB on NPM for our database driver we were using. And I had the name... Uh, router, I think, for the router we were using. That was just an internal thing. ExpressDS really wanted the router name for that router. And I was on NPM myself, because I have a lot of modules, I often ask for a lot of people, and they're always very friendly. So when people ask me for names that I don't use, I also give them out. So that was just being used for our old router. So I gave it to Express. For the DB one, I can't remember if we just parked that somewhere or who has it now. But you know, that's all. that was not a good name in general, because it was just like... <laughs> you know our database <laughs> very very non very non-descriptive that was so available by then so we had a you know we had a utility module it was called common i think we had common also the name on there so we had all these like fun weird small names that we could just get so we did a lot of uh, open source as part of that that's how I, I got into it and then and you know we were a small company so like also just making things open source just has a lot of benefits in terms of like you don't have to sign up to a bunch of things you get a lot of things for free weird so it's easy for us to get started doing it that way just to be very pragmatic again after you know we got acquired yeah definitely went into a a different gear because that was kind of like my creative outlet i think of writing all kinds of different things for fun to experiment with a bunch of things and then just yeah really got into it for sure how does someone make money with doing open source uh, I think the easy answer is they don't. <laughs> I think anybody you can ask, I'm sure you can if you really, really, I've seen some people make some interesting models. I never did it myself back then to make money. I just did it because I thought it was fun and I was privileged enough to have a lot of free time uh, outside work. And also, you know, I come from the Scandinavia and in general have a really balanced like work-life culture here. So if you want to have a lot of free time, you can have it. And I was like, that was my, instead of reading a book, I would write a little module to forced myself to get better at something. I did get a fair amount of attention for it. So what I mean by that is like, it definitely doesn't hurt your career to do it because you build like a open source profile and stuff like that. So you get a lot of, all of a sudden you start getting a lot of job offers and things like that. Over the years, I also tried different models too, because like, obviously as you then get further and further in your, in your career and you get, and you get older and you get all the priorities in life, it's not as easy as you just said, take time out to write open source. So I did definitely try different ways of see, like seeing like, can I actually make a living of it? But I haven't found anything. If I wanted to do like a full on, just do whatever I want, open source career, there's ways of doing that, but I haven't found anything that's too appealing to me. I'd rather do other things. So, so I, I'm 
self-employed and I only do things where I can actually use open source and expand on my open source things in general. Things you can, you know, there's things like GitHub sponsors and other avenues you can try to make money through. And I have seen people making like significant amount of money there, but I always thought, I don't know, I don't like the idea of having to ask for donations that much myself. I think NPM is like one of the only one package manager that I've seen with a funding feature where you can you can see messages from the the package uh, owner asking for funding and such and donation. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. You can definitely make some money doing it, but I always felt the amount of t- effort I have to put in to that, those kind of systems to get any kind of return. We're computer programmers and. I could also just do consulting if I wanted to. And I could probably, the amount of time I, I would spend figuring out new ways of asking for donations. I used to do stuff like selling t-shirts and stuff like that. Um, unless you're really successful, it's it's just, uh, there's easier ways to spend your time, I think. Do you still maintain some some libraries on the NPM or? Oh, I maintain, I maintain I, uh, oh yeah, I make it sound like I don't write any open source. I write tons of open source. Right now I have like almost a thousand modules. Um, and while I obviously don't maintain all of them, but I tend to write only a couple of exceptions where I can see like the end goal of it when I write it. So a project like um, React.js or Angular or something like that, it's like very open-ended. When does that start and stop? Not that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying like that's a thing where you, if you write that one, you got to commit significant investment and like overall time. Most of the things I write is like thing that does A with B, where I'm like, I can write it and, and then I'll think this is done now. So the maintenance burden there, other than some uh, box and stuff like that, is, is pretty pretty minimal. That's the kind of stuff I enjoy to to write myself. With obviously a couple of exceptions to that always, but um, and people who send me issues will probably maybe say something else because I'm sometimes it takes like a year for me to reply because again like I have limited time. But but uh, I don't have much that I'm like oh my god I'm not I don't think anybody should use that anymore. Yeah, I kind of wanted to go back to that. Um this that protocol, right? Because it's kind of a cool thing, right? When did it happen and, and why? It's probably like 10 years ago now or five, I don't know. I was doing a lot of open source and um, especially doing a lot of experimentation with the BitTorrent protocol. Um, you're probably familiar with BitTorrent, but I was, I was doing a lot of stuff with trying to make things stream using Node.js or BitTorrent because I always thought that was an interesting goal because then you could download things faster uh, if you just wanted to like a partial subset of something and I did a lot of stuff with that i got really popular and got a lot of traction online that's probably part of it but that's why uh, at the same time my friend max was working on some data science stuff and he reached out to me and asked if i was interested in working on this project called that together with him that was like an open source data protocol for science and like trying to figure out how we can get better at that and i was like immediately struck by that as a good idea obviously because it's a you know appealed to me from a personal point of view like it's like solving those kind of problems is something i always wanted to do so just from a practical like uh, open source project he had gotten a small grant back then so we could actually get paid doing it so again like going back to the whole being paid to do open source or making money from it that was like also a big appeal for me back then and then uh, yeah, we started building a ton of prototypes around that uh, with a lot of the ideas I had f- from my peer-to-peer experience with BitTorrent. It was really, really, really fun uh, while it lasted. So what, what was uh, the end vision of the, of the product? This idea of trying to get grant funding. Grant funding, if you're not familiar with it, it's just, normally, it's just like nonprofit money. It's normally something people give to, you know, restore some old thing or 
to cure something in science or something like that. And his idea was like, let's get open, let's get grant money to do an open source project because it's kind of fits those things. And that was a very interesting thing. So um, we're lucky enough to get like like continuous grants over the years to to work on that for like through this promise of like building peer to peer tech for for science to work on that for like four or five years with the idea always being to kind of like bootstrap an open source project, but, you know, we're in a way where we could actually have funding to build it out, uh, not just um, do it in our spare time, but like do it seriously. But like build out a tool that was um, useful for, for scientists to like publish data without having to bag it up on a server and pay for that and link it. You know, I don't know how much, to be honest, how, how much of that, that last part we succeeded with. We ended up building a ton of cool stuff, but like adoption was always hard because it's, some of those environments are pretty conservative and we're also hackers and but like the technology we got to build in between was like really really amazing and and that's the stuff i'm still working on today so i'm very happy with with that whole process okay okay what, what was the relationship with between the, the that protocol and and everything around it and uh what's called the hyper protocol nowadays that itself like was this you know scientific tool chain or whatever you want to call it like a series of, of tools combined uh, for sharing this data but the underlying protocol i was building out for that was called the module i made back then called uh, uh, hypercore and as the project that project like ran its course and um and i you know was doing more and more stuff in the peer-to-peer space i just always came back to the hypercore module as a, like a really because it was like one of those like i said before like a module that was expressed by does A with B, you know, like had a scope. I was like, it was really good at moving data around, but not necessarily scientific data or any, but just any kind of data. It was like a really good infrastructure piece. So at some point we kind of realized after the, the debt project itself has kind of like wound down and you know, we hadn't gotten any new grants in a long time that this was the core thing that we actually wanted to expand on and build on. And instead of, so to kind of like bring that to the focus, we, we did this rebrand of making that the focus of a lot of tools, if that makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. So Hypercore is really the the first brick of the what we what we call the hyper hyper protocol now. Yeah, so that's like the that's like the the bread and butter that of that that's like the you know the <laughs> TCP layer sometimes we call it here if we're talking to technical people like the the super low level layer that does all the heavy lifting of being able to move tons of data around really efficiently, but then on top of that you can build all kinds of interesting and and uh, cool applications that does very much very advanced things for, for different things and we've done tons of stuff afterwards in, the, in that space of building databases and 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 still do you had to i mean you worked with uh, bitfinex on a product called dazar could you explain what it is and and what's up with it yeah definitely they are a long-term supporter of my open source work because uh, there's obviously a big overlap between cryptocurrencies and peer-to-peer um, -peer and like the technologies so like speaking of open source funding there the people there have always been very uh, generous at sponsoring and supporting a lot of things I've, I've worked with in the past so i'm always very grateful for that the cto there paulo approached me at some point with an idea of like whether or not we could we could build a network on top of uh, hypercore for moving data around here was like financial data but where you could also have a some access controls in there for doing stuff like paid data or whatever you wanted to do. And that was kind of, that was the design project back then. We did as a consultancy project back then. It's a proof of concept of that. Having tons of data in hypercourse, but being able to 
with some hooks in the in the in the APIs, being able to monetize that if you wanted to as a user by requiring payment or doing something else, just having controls on the on the protocol for that. And we did some experiments and we deployed it with them also uh, on a bunch of data sets that are online today. And it was uh, very interesting. We're actually working on a new iteration of that project now, so it'll be more bio, more more about that in the future as well. Okay, so if if someone wants to get more information about it, where should they go? So there's a, I think there's a website, that's our com, uh, but also follow the GitHub repos and, and also just follow me and Twitter and I'll be posting more about that in the future. Right. Another very interesting thing I tested today, I, I know that you worked on is a, a browser that is kind of a, encompassing all of the, the peer-to-peer systems that you've been building. So could you talk about it or... Yeah, so like, uh, so basically, in general, like the last three three years, I think I've just been focused on building out um, hypercore technology in general. In general, also as part, of, I did a lot of consultancy around it uh, with a friend of mine, and doing a lot of big projects from now on. It always thinking about like peer to peer systems and how we can do it, and that was that was part of the the SAP project. Also, we just talked about, but um, big part of that was also uh, was always like. How can we make this kind of stuff more approachable to people? Together with a friend of mine, Paul Frazee, and another friend, uh, Andrew Asheroff, we did this browser-based project called the Beaker Browser, which was trying to say, basically, what if you had a web browser like Chrome or any you know other browser, but in addition to speak normal HTTP and being like a you know web environment, what if it could load websites over the P2P network? In this case, over uh, you know in a, over a data structure but backed by hypercores. So you can publish websites from home and, and load them everywhere. We were lucky enough to work with, with Paul on that project who's like has a really big vision for the web in general and like product design. And he made a lot of like really cool browser APIs for interacting with that. Long story short, like being a browser where in, in addition to just putting an HTTP link, you could put in a, a link to a P2P data structure. Here the link would then be identified by a public key. So they're pretty crazy links that were then loaded from the network. So Instead of having all the data and all your requests go to like a server somewhere, it would just go to this network of, of peers around the world uh, that were serving sites and had all these cool effects of like when you visit a site and then you're all automatically hosting it for the network so another people coming by can get it from you. But uh, the pro- our underlying protocol made it very easy to publish updates and, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it's still running as, a, as an open source project. Paul is focusing on on some other things now. We're focusing on the, the core technology a little bit more, but um, I think the idea is still still really cool. It's, it is a massive project, though, to make a browser. I gotta say that. That was like one of the learnings also. Like, there's just a ton, there's just tons of stuff in there. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> the idea itself is, is really cool. Like, it's definitely how the, the web and how future things should work more in general. Like, this whole obsession about data having to be loaded from silos around the, the world is definitely very wrong in my opinion it's like instead of having it be self-described like peer-to-peer systems are so you can load it from anywhere with the same kind of security guarantees is obviously much much stronger and creates some much more healthy patterns of uh, collaboration and, and, and data flow in general i see is it based on webkit or or even chromium or or is it it was based on Chromium. Through, it was actually just through the Electron project, if you know that. That's like a very easy way of interacting with Chromium with Node. So that part, luckily, was was uh, is done for us. And then we just add in our like engine, if you want to put it like that. Of this is how you can load these websites from the network instead of 
the P2P network instead of loading it from an HTTP link. But then you still got to, like, then there's like tons of just product stuff, obviously. Even though it's based on renderer, you still got to implement all the interactions you have with, the, with your browser and the UIs and all that stuff. So just tons of work, actually, when it comes down to it. And that was mostly Paul who worked on that a lot. And he's, uh, he's a machine. It's a very, very cool product. At the end of it, we kind of, I think we all realized that there's like more focused peer-to-peer products you could build that gets the ideas across better and that has much more powerful impact. And that's, I think that's what we're all focusing on now. So it's, it's still running along, but that's mostly in a like classic open source capacity, low updates at the moment. Okay, okay. So someone that would publish a website on the peer-to-peer protocol, can he, is he still in control of this website? Can he take it off from the network or? Uh, you know, even a normal website, somebody can take a picture off and rehost it somewhere. And so it's not like data revocation in general, it's just really, really hard. But in the peer-to-peer network, it's even harder because there we make it, it's a feature, right? That is very easy to rehost. So the user can like delete the site and it will propagate through the network. But if somebody chooses to keep it, then there's not much you can do. That doesn't mean that new users will necessarily keep it. They, you know, the new updates will probably win there. It means that uh, in general, you're in full control of your site. You control all the updates that go out to it, just like you are with like if you set up a server somewhere. But you don't have to set up any infrastructure for it. You can just make it on your computer. And we do all this uh, very involved technologies around like penetrating networks. So even though you're on a computer at home that has like a firewall, and you probably have an IP that's like dynamic. You can still connect to other people because we do all these techniques of punching through those firewalls, making sure you can do connections. So it actually feels like you're running a server at home. And then as soon as, again, like as soon as your data leaves your computer, if you're if you if you're seeding your, your website uh, or any data for that matter, then other people can, can re-host it for you if that's what you want. That model is in general really, really powerful because it just, you know, it removes the, the need of like having to, A, know anything about like, infrastructure and setting up machines and servers which is a huge burden for a lot of people and also like just the financial burden of that but also just unlocks this really interesting flow of like which i love after like crazy and experimentation locally where you know all of a sudden you can you can make a thousand websites locally and they're all just as easy to share you don't have to set up like thousands of servers and so you can try all kinds of app ideas really easily and then the one that picks off is the one you can then spend more time on so it's, there's some very very interesting patterns there that are can really do otherwise okay just uh, out of curiosity how um, how heavy is uh, the peer-to-peer part of the the browser in terms of like performance and and, and needs it's actually hard to answer because sometimes it's much much faster than existing things sometimes it's much much slower it really depends because like obviously you can peer-to-peer doesn't necessarily mean better or worse because it just means that you can kind of pick it yourself like it's like you know it's, it's a scale you can you can drag between the zero and 100 but like for example what i mean is if you have a website on a peer-to-peer drive but you choose to mirror it on a server that is um, you know available then it's just as fast as any other website but if it's all being seated at home from your low-powered raspberry pi and somebody else and you're in like scandinavia and somebody's trying to load it from japan then obviously it's you know speed of light we can't really do much about it but the cool thing about peer-to-peer networks is that you can you can kind of you can you can you can control that yourself you can just spin up mirrors and set up more data or somebody else can just do that for you you don't even have to do it yourself so in general like so it's a really hard question to answer obviously there's some some overhead with like some cryptography but there's always there's tons of overhead with that already on the web because everything is ssl anyway and that's kind of there's been a lot of work into that by a lot of smart people making sure that it actually doesn't matter anymore so 
yeah, so we definitely seen things that are much very, very fast, and we definitely seen things that have been very, very slow, but it's always been explained by the laws of physics, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. What are your your current projects and, and future projects? You, you mentioned that you, you were doing some work on Dazar. Is there anything else or...? Yeah, so we're working on a big new uh, version of Hypercore in general. We've been working on all year. That's adding tons of improvements and performance things, and um, and some multi-rider capabilities. And we're very very excited about those. So we have a whole team working on that right now. And then we're building a series of products around that. Also, that's a little bit too early to talk too much about at this stage. We're still figuring that stuff off. But it's just 100% peer to peer and 100% really cool tech. It's really really fun. And 100% uh, JavaScript node. A lot of Seek also. C, you know, like language C. I didn't mention that before, but one of my favorite things about Node.js is how easy it is to interface with native code. So like if we have to run like cryptography and stuff like that, you don't have to implement all that yourself in JavaScript. You can just do that in C and it's best of every world, but tons of JavaScript for sure. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. What is your experience with cryptocurrencies and what's, uh, what's your opinion on it? When they started appearing, I was very skeptical. And as I've been working with it more and more through uh, various consultancies and also just to, to learn more because it's like, it's obviously it has a huge overlap with my own uh, work in terms of like technologies. I've started to see much more of the, the uses of it. Like that doesn't mean that, it, that, you know, it's one of those fields where 95% of everything out there is probably bad and probably 50% of it is a scam, but the problems they solve, the core problems are actually really, really useful, especially when you're working with peer-to-peer -peer technology, like this whole idea of having a way to achieve what we call global consensus, i.e. like, you know, agreeing that uh, the world can agree on what the order of a set of data is, which is like the my technical expression of a cryptocurrency, like, like a globally ordered series of events. There's use for that. And there's definitely also financial use for that. So I don't think I would ever like do a or work on a cryptocurrency myself, but I definitely work with them and we also do work with them. And I think that the use cases there and the disruption that they cause uh, can be really good for P2P technology. The overlap between that and some of the stuff in general we're working with, because we don't really do these kind of like, kind of like globally proof of work style systems. We do more like infrastructure systems and we definitely seen a lot of use cases for, for a combination of those. So that's also very exciting. But uh, you know, with everything, there's like things they need to, those things that needs to be fixed and evolved. And I wish we could have fewer scams and we could have more, uh, you know, some of the public discourse around them are also pretty intense because there's just so many very, very opinionated people in that space. So definitely not a fan that of like the whole burning the world down because of like power consumption and their stuff that needs to be worked on. I think actually more that's because we're using a lot of cryptocurrencies for a lot of the wrong reasons rather than using them for their, their core purpose. I'm, I'm positive for the future there, and I think that they're going to cause uh, some good changes in a lot of things. Any crypto project, use, I mean, cryptocurrency project using Hypercore or? Not that I know, like, directly. I also don't know if that would make a lot of sense. I know a lot of people that work, that done, like, um, projects around it they use it because that's where you know it's the kind of like it's a really good what they would call like a side chain you know moving stuff around but i don't think it would necessarily be good to build a crypt cryptocurrency on that i don't know definitely talk to a lot of people that's using it in the context of it and which makes sense because i also done projects myself around that so what about ai what about machine learning did you do you do any of this or I don't do much myself. I've, I've dive into it a little bit from a curiosity point of view. I like to like always know a little bit about everything. I'm not smart enough to tell you like, <laughs> you know, the disruption, the disruption that's going to have. I'm always like, 
very impressed by the the updated benchmarks in in machine learning and AI when you know, when they when they beat the the Go game and like these other things that it's consistently improving and you're like you know definitely tons of smart people working on it and then I'm, at the same time I'm also constantly disappointed with every product the names AI and their branding and how little smart things actually do you know how even though we have you know smart quote unquote AI on our phones that we can talk to the things they can do is extremely limited. I think, and that's probably like, if you look back at AI, that's probably like the story of it, like that it's progressing fast and the, the capabilities in specific fields, it's probably insanely powerful, but the end user breakthrough where you, where it's not just like pretending to be smart. I think, I think we're a little bit off on that. I hope, I hope to see it. I don't know if you saw that um, GitHub, what's it called? Copilot stuff, right? That's like in our field, like, you know, the AI assistive stuff, there's like some really interesting patterns there. Where I feel like a lot of the the Twitter conversation I saw around it was like, is this going to replace developers? Where I'm like, it's definitely not at the moment because there's a very long way on that. But at the same time, it can definitely, you know, some of the simpler problems in programming, I don't understand why we don't apply these smart machine learning algorithms more to it. Like, I don't a lot of, had a lot of trouble in the past doing things like um, finding modules. You know, there's like, I don't know how, how many, a million modules on NPM now. But finding any that actually fits your your requirements is really hard. And uh, why why can't we use more machine learning for stuff like that? That seems like maybe we can, and maybe people are working on it. But like that seems like something those kind of technologies would be really really good for, rather than trying to replace a developer because it can't really yet. Right? Did did you try uh, Copilot or? Uh, I'd sign up for. It. I don't know if I actually because there's a waiting list, right? I don't know if I got through. But um, what I'm fishing for is like instead of having a editor plugin that tries to write code for me i think if i had an editor plugin that was consistently telling me that i could just use this module instead that would be massively dis disruptive in a good way for my programming because that's probably like the real impact you know i'm probably writing code all the time that somebody else already wrote and i don't need to copy i don't need an ai to copy paste it i need an ai to tell me that this is the project i should use instead i always feel like it's a little bit misplaced because of like i'm sure the marketing around the other thing is a little bit stronger but i think the actual real life impact of these simpler things is, is better on the short term. It depends on what you're going for. Well, what's your your point of view of the, um, how crowded NPM is nowadays? I would I could rephrase your question and say like, should it be harder to publish things to NPM? And I'm you know coming from having basically learned to program by publishing things to NPM. I would say definitely no. It's one of the huge things about NPM in general. It's like the flow from writing something to publishing it is so simple. And it's like very empowering and you don't have to worry about it. I don't think you should worry too much about reinventing the wheel, for example. Sometimes there's tons of use cases for that. Like you want to make sure that things don't go away or you have control and stuff like that. So if anything, I think it should be more crowded. But I think going back to the thing we talked about previously, it's, it's more of a discovery problem. Like how do you actually find the things you're looking for? Because that's almost impossible, the more stuff that comes in. And I don't know if you ever, you know, if you think back of, when you find any modules you like, how do you actually find them? Because I don't know if I ever had success finding something other than a couple of things using like a search engine, because it generally just suggests something based on some metrics that don't really work for code that well. The whole idea of having a global namespace makes it unnecessarily complicated and also confusing. You know what I mean by that is like, you have to fight for a name on NPM. And if you have a better name, you probably get better usage rather than everything just being like your username slash a package name. Because then as an open source developer, a real problem is maybe I maintain something that has a good name, 
like I think I have a CSV module that I don't maintain anymore, but somebody else does. I think that's called like CSV stream or something like that word, which is in general, it's a very concise I think a lot of people would say, oh, it's a good name. If I wanted to stop maintaining that, I have to do a very active handover to someone else because it's, I own the name. You know, I'm done with it because it's open source, but now I got to spend a ton of resources as a person vetting somebody else to take it over and make sure that they are not trying to scam me because that happens all the time also, or like inject some malware or a Bitcoin miner or something like that. But if, they were, if the name was like always namespace, they could just start their own project and they wouldn't, my name, my name wouldn't appear nicer than their name, if you know what I mean. Then they also get the credit. That, that I think was something I would change today, just having written tons of modules and been through that a lot. And I think that would solve discovery also. Is there anything uh, you would like to, to share or just before we, we end uh, here? Uh, I don't know when you're airing it, but uh, we're doing actually a peer-to-peer uh, workshop soon in late October at uh, NodeConf Euro. It's uh, remote, so if, um, if anybody is more interested in some of the peer-to-peer stuff I talked about here, and they should sign up. And uh, Or if they also just want to learn more, they can reach out to me on, on Twitter. And we have a Discord also that you can find if you Google Hypercore Discord. And I'm always happy to talk peer-to-peer and all these things we talked about here in general. All right. It was uh, was very nice to, to talk to you today. Thank you for your time. You too, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey.